Hi, everybody. Welcome to Unrestricted, the podcast that interviews noted public figures that have now returned to a more private life. My name is Steve Savitsky, president of B'nai Tzion Foundation, former president and chairman of many Jewish organizations. The people you're about to meet have great wisdom and experience. They were all leaders in the Jewish world and have much to share, unrestricted, with our listening audience. Hello, everybody. Today we have a wonderful guest, a very good friend of mine for many, many years, an incredible person, the uh, former coach of the Yeshiva University basketball team, a very interesting individual, a good friend. Uh, Welcome, Jonathan Halpert, or if we call him Johnny. Johnny, how are you? I'm doing good, Steve. How are you? I am doing absolutely great. So everybody knows you, Johnny, for all your years that you spent at Yeshiva University, uh, and um, obviously you were in the, you were in the limelight, uh, interviewed all over, but now life is a little different. So maybe people out there would be interested to find out, what are you doing now? Uh, you know, what is your life like today compared to what it was like when you were coaching Yeshiva University? Well, um, I spent a lot of time at Costco, uh, even more time at the doctor's offices, because uh, when I left YU in 2013, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma. So it's been a, uh, a nine-year struggle, lots of doctor's visits, uh, lots of treatments. Uh, thank God uh, today uh, I'm really in a pretty good place. So that's taken up a good deal of time. Uh, I've also spent some time working with other college coaches on the QT. On the QT because they didn't want, I guess, their athletic directors to know they were working with me. And I've spent really a lot of time writing books. As a matter of fact, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just about to publish a book, and I have, I have a first copy that just uh, came out. I don't know if you can see it. What does it say? Driveway hoops, right? An illustrated guide to basketball fundamentals for kids, parents, and coaches, written by Johnny Halpert and illustrated by Sarah Kapitnikov. Sarah Kapitnikov. Okay, very nice. So, who's the, who's the book for? There's a, it's it's basically for par- for kids and parents. It, everything's an illustration, how to shoot, how to pass, how to catch the ball. It's all about fundamentals, the fundamentals of basketball. So I spent a good deal of time writing this one. This one is really coming out after Yuntiv. I got some pretty good endorsements on it. Uh, Bill Rafferty, Lou Kataseka. I have another two books that I've finished, which will probably come out in the next, uh, hopefully in the next year or so. This is going to be available at all your your bookstores, and if you go to and if you go to my website, you could get it right off of my website. You can buy it right there. Okay, that's a, it. Sounds good. Just to buy, so make sure people know what is the website so people if they want to go. Uh, it's coachjonathanhalpert.com. Okay, very good. So it sounds like you've been pretty busy, but it's a different kind of world. So first of all, I'm glad to hear that you're feeling better and that uh, your treatments are working, and you should have a, a, a full shalema. I just want to answer you. The, the reason I, when people ask how I'm doing, I, I, have, I have no hesitation about telling them that I had uh, was diagnosed because I think it's important for people to know that today, with the, the modern the phenomenal uh, medicine today, the advances they've made, is that this has now become something that, which is very, very treatable. And so for, I know there are others out there who, 
who unfortunately have been diagnosed with multiple myeloma. And I just want them to know that there is tremendous hope and you really can you really you really can beat this deal. So that's why I'm willing to talk about it and prepared to talk about it because I think it's important that people know that. Wonderful. That's really, really great. So let's go back a little bit in history. Obviously, I mean, we know each other for a long time. I know that you you played ball yourself in high school, MTA, and then you played at Yeshiva University. And then shortly afterwards, in a way, you got the job as coach. So how did that come about? Well, uh, so I played for Red Sarachek from 62 to 66. Uh, anybody who played for Red had a difficult relationship with Red when you played for him. But the man was a genius. And I learned I learned all my basketball from Red. Then uh, I started coaching because I went into teaching. And coaching was a natural second job. So I coached at the high school. And in 72, Mr. Wednesday, who was the MTA coach, decided to retire. They and they offered me the high school job. And maybe three months later, Red Sarachek called me, and Sam Studer, who had the job, had taken the job at New York Tech, and Red offered me the, the college job. So I had the choice between the high school job and the college job, and I decided to take the college job. So you never really, you never coached at the high school level, right? I co- I was the JV coach. Actually, the only championships I've ever won was at the JV. That's about 60 years ago. Uh, so I coached JV basketball. I also was the assistant coach of the high school. MTA. So I know I know it's a difficult job, and I guess a lot of people don't know, but uh, you really had a you had a day job. So why don't you just tell people about that? Because I don't think people really understand that you were a very successful business person, a PhD in uh, special education. So you know, let, let people know a little bit what you did because it wasn't easy doing this job at YU. Well, no, <laughs> that's just, that's for sure. So I graduated college and I uh, went into teaching. So I uh, I taught special ed, and then, uh, while I was uh, got the college job, and while I was t- t- had the college job, I also was teaching special ed and going for a PhD, which I I got my PhD in special ed in 1978. Continued to teach until the early 80s. And then uh, it's very interesting because it's very relevant to today. Then the concept of deinstitutionalization arrived, where they were taking uh, the people who, were, who had been institutionalized and they started moving them out of the institutions and putting them into group homes. And so uh, myself and my partner, we wrote, wrote a uh, proposal to the state and they awarded us a, a contract to, to run group homes. I always refer to it as camp. 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And we ran group homes for the development of the disabled. Uh, that was really my, uh, my real job. So I would, you know, I was out in Long Island in, in Suffolk County. I would go out there at about 8 o'clock in the morning, stay there until like 5, 6 o'clock, come back to New York, went up to YU, practiced two, three times a week. And that's pretty much was my my life started in, uh, in certainly in the 80s uh, when I left teaching. And I did that until 2001. When did YU actually open their gym? Because, I mean, I, when I went there, obviously, there was no gym. You practiced in uh, George Washington High School. Well, when I started in 72, we practiced every place in the city. We practiced in George Washington High School, St. Helena's High School, FIT, uh, Junior High School 145. Basically, sometimes it practice was, uh, we practiced only three times a week. I didn't know where we were practicing. If we were had a practice Wednesday night, I wasn't sure where we were practicing on uh, Wednesday morning. And that was the system until 1985 when they ha- opened the gym. And then once they opened the gym, the, the basketball took a you know a huge step up. The program, you know, obviously changed, got upgraded. You know, you had your own gym, your own place, fans could come. And what kids 
could participate in the program, and it made it a little easier to recruit also. Yeah, well, there's no question that it changed. It really changed a lot. So, you know, every every coach has a different style. Uh, no two coaches are alike. Could you compare and contrast your style with, like, Red Saracek's? Well, the truth is my style was a continuation of Red's. Red was a, a tremendous fundamentalist. Supposedly, he believed in the concept of moving without the ball, which doesn't exist anymore today. The concept of moving without the ball was to move so that you could create time and space in order to make the shot. And uh, that, that was my style. That's what, that's what we played to the very end. Uh, that style is really essentially over. You, you'll find almost virtually no teams out there who play that style. The style today is really just, you know, a very, very much up-tempo today. It's pass, break, and shoot the three. So let me ask you this question. So if that style was a good style, could it still work today? Or because the game has changed, it, it just can't work anymore? Say that that's the mistake people make. They think they have to make a choice. You, you, you can incorporate the, the fundamentals of the game to today's style. And you can play today's style in an up-tempo fashion using the same principles that Red used, that, that basketball used 50, 60 years ago. As a matter of fact, the few teams in the, in the NBA and college who still do that have been very successful. The, the Spurs, uh, the Celtics of a couple of years ago. If you watch them carefully, you'll see they do a lot of movie without the ball. It's a, they are very up-tempo, and they're great shooters. But you don't have to choose at all. You, you can incorporate both. Unfortunately today, at least in my opinion, is that most coaches – really don't know, or not that they don't know the fundamentals, they don't emphasize it at all. So I think that's a tremendous mistake, and I think ultimately, no matter what style you play, you have to know the fundamentals. It, it doesn't matter if it's what you are, what area you're in, of expertise you're in, whether you're in the market. Every time you talk about the market today, everyone talks about the fundamentals. The fundamentals don't change. Look, 30, 40 years ago, they took set shots, all right? 20 years ago, they started shooting jump shots. Now they have crossover dribbles and threes from 35 points. But the bottom line is you're still shooting the ball. So you have to know how to shoot the ball. What are the fundamentals of shooting? What's the body balance? And it's the same concept also. If you if you move a little without the ball, you'll create space and time, which will only make you a better shooter. So there's no inconsistency. Unfortunately, today, people think you have to do one or the other. In my opinion, it's a terrible mistake. The other book I have coming out is called uh, Backdoor Hoops. It's called The Lost Art of Moving Without the Ball. And it just discusses there what are the different things you could do when you don't have the ball. Play, the game is played with five guys with one ball. That means 80% of the time you don't have the ball. Right, I hear you. It's really a choreography in a way. And it's kind of like a dance movement where everybody is kind of part of the weaving until you get the ball and then you have a, something to do with the ball. You know, I mean, obviously I went to a lot of games and saw you coach. And so, you know, and I know your style. People maybe forget, but you had a pretty good record at Yeshiva University. And you had how many seasons in a row where you had a winning record? Starting in 1984 to 2013, I think we had only two or three years where we didn't have winning records. And there was a stretch there, I think, of 16 years in a row where we had winning records. We went to four ECAC postseason playoffs. We never won the league championship. We played in a couple of final games, but uh, we were very competitive. Again, it's it's a little boastful, but the facts are we were we were very competitive and very well respected program. We weren't a always able to you know reach the mountaintop, so to speak, because of a lack of depth. It wasn't that we didn't have really good players. We had some terrific players, terrific players. But when you look at like I've been to uh, some of the games, and uh, once again, I'm not an expert, but 
it just seems that the caliber of the teams, I may be wrong, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that the caliber of some of the teams that I see while you play today are not exactly at the same level that I used to see years ago. When I used to go to a game, would see people from the Merchant Marines or other places like that, and they were always great. And now you see them, they're, they're not. Why? What happened? I do have a theory about that, and it's interesting that you bring it up because so I retired in 2013, right? So the previous years, for example, maybe two years previous to that, we played Purchase, and Purchase had a, a 6'8 center and a 6'7 reserve. They were really very solid teams, like you said. So I, then I come back and I start watching the teams in 2014, 15, 16, and I, I say, what happened here? I don't understand. I For 40, I, 41 years, I struggled against all these really good teams. And now I take a look and and I say, this is not the teams I, I played against. You know, I made a joke. I said, uh, we uh, I went to see Shiva play Mount St. Vincent, which was always a tremendous rivalry. You know, it was a very tough game. And the Mount St. Vincent guys came out of the court and two of the guys were wearing glasses. I said, what's going on here? That's Yeshiva guys used to wear glasses, not Mount St. Vincent. So you're right. It did change. And I think it's part of a kind of a, a phenomenon taking place in basketball from the top on down. And that, you know, without getting into the weeds of it, it's that what's happened today in basketball is that in the old days, kids played high school basketball. That's where they played the basketball. They got recruited from high school. They went to the college and then from the college, they went to the pros. And uh, somewhere along the line, what happened was the AAU teams came into being. And that was a function of high school programs, the public high school programs, especially lacking the funding and therefore not having the coaching and everything that went with it. And kids started playing AU to AU basketball, which was basketball. They, they Like Nike, all the big sneaker companies would come along and sponsor teams. And they would travel all over the country. And kids, the best players, would play on these travel teams, which left the high school programs decimated. So a lot of kids stopped playing high school basketball because the best players were playing AAU basketball. A place like Mount St. Vincent, Kings Point, all those schools we played, who did they recruit? They recruited the fourth, fifth, sixth best players on the public school teams and the Catholic school teams. The best players went Division One, Division Two, but there was a, a really a nice pool of players left for them to recruit. Now, those kids don't exist. They don't play. They've stopped playing. They go play lacrosse. They play soccer. They don't play basketball. So the pool of talent has shrunk. So guys who used to be the best players of Division Three now play Division Two, And the better players of Division Two have moved up to one. And at, at Division One, the best players of Division One are in the pros. I would say 20% of the pros, of the pro teams today, if you go through all the rosters of the pro teams, 20%, 25%, maybe more, of the players on the pro roster today should all be in college still. They should be sophomores, juniors, and seniors. But the best players in college, D1, don't stay. They're one year and they're gone. Jay Wright, a very successful coach at Villanova, retired. Why did he retire? He said, because I can't coach here anymore. Because I need to coach players for two or three years to get into a level where we could win. And those guys don't stay anymore. So, so what's happened is that the pool of players continues to shrink and the level of play at Division Three has diminished. I don't want this to sound like I'm taking anything away from the great success that Wahoo has had over these past past years. They've had great success and they should be, you know, receive all the credit in the world. But the fact remains is that the teams they are playing today 
are just not the same quality as the teams we played in the past. YU's quality has improved, and the other team's quality has gone down. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And when you think about it in a way, if what you're saying is true, then why you should continuously do pretty well. Because like, if you're Mount St. Vincent or you're Bard or whatever it is, where are you getting players from? I mean, you have a limited pool. Whereas YU, they have a pool of talent that they can get. So I think it kind of bodes well for the future of YU basketball. Also understand that in the, in the 70s, the 80s, uh, how many yeshivas were there outside of New York, the, the metropolitan area? Yeah, there, there are yeshiva high schools now. Detroit, Kansas City, Dallas, you name it. So the number of yeshivas has grown, and therefore the number of kids in the yeshivas has multiplied. So the pool has just grown in terms of numbers and also around the country. While, like you said, Mount St. Vincent, we used to be able to draw from the local Catholic schools in the metropolitan area, those programs have diminished, and therefore their pool is going down. So it's really, it's it's a very interesting thing. The only place where there's really growth taking place in college Division three basketball is in the yeshiva world. And, more, and by the way, more yeshiva kids are playing basketball. Which is good, which obviously, as I said, bodes well for, for what's going on. So how did you feel? I mean, look, I know... I know your hearts, you know, with the team and everything. They had great success this year, great publicity. I'm sure you felt good about it, but there had to be some element of, well, you know, why wasn't that me? Well, no, that, there wasn't a little element of that. There was a lot. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be honest. What okay. little? What, are you kidding? You know, when, you, when, you, when you're doing something for 41 years, you know, and you're at a certain level, and I, again, I don't, I don't want to diminish the players I had because I had some great players. I just didn't have that depth. So all of a sudden to see a team they, they had seven players, eight players who would have been number one for me and now we had like six of them. So I said, wow, look at that and then look who they're playing. So yes, there's no question it was something that had said, gee, I wish I had that. At the same time though, I was very happy because as you know, Steve, we know during a long time, I you know, for me, Yeshiva University is is the epitome. It's great. And that for Yeshiva University to have success, the team to have success, I was absolutely thrilled about that. I was thrilled for the kids. I was very happy for the kids. And, you know, all I wanted to see is to see them succeed. What I especially wanted to do, though, is to see was that not only that they would succeed, but they would still maintain their identity and still never forget what they represented and not allow themselves to get seduced you know, when you start to win, start to make money, you know, in business, it's very easy to get seduced. So that's something that you have to constantly work about. But yeah, no, there was no question. There was an element on my part that said, whoa, why not me? That could have been me, you know, but but it's okay. But I'll tell you why it's, I'll tell you what's okay. Why, why it was really okay. Because what I learned after I, when I left, I always wondered, I always said to myself, you know, they're going to make a, a, a dinner for me or they name the floor for me. And I was always worried. And I so, always told the Viva, I don't know if I want it, if I want this. She said, why? I said, I don't know if anybody's going to show up. I mean, how many guys are going to show up? 25 guys, 30 guys. You know, I wasn't sure. I thought I thought I had good relationships with players, but you never know, you know. So I said, what happens if only 30 people come? How embarrassing that I coach 400 guys and it's say only 30 guys show up. But the truth of the matter is it was only – Sort of after the fact that I came to understand that 
the guys liked me, you know, and uh, I more than liked me. The guys respected me. I, you know, I can't tell you how many guys would call me when I'd see them and they'd say, you know, you changed my life. And uh, so they would walk away. We'd meet somebody randomly and he would say, you know, I just want to tell you something. You know, you changed my whole life. And, oh, thank you very much. Wow. You know, and then so they would go away. And then Aviva or one of my kids would say, well, who was that? I said, I think his name was this, you know, and I, he, she, she said, what did you do? I said, I don't remember. I don't remember what I did. He was on the team for a couple of years. I don't remember doing anything heroic, you know, and I tell you something, Steve. <laughs> it's interesting because you have a wonderful Torah about the, the Kansipur. But I always remember how, what, you, what the take of it was there are moments. And sometimes it's the small, it's the little moments. It's the small things that you do. The opportunity appears and you do something. You have an opportunity and you do something that's right. And you think it's, ah, it's just a small little thing. But I'll tell you, that I realize now those small little things, maybe you, maybe you thought they were small. But for the person you did it to, you have no idea of the impact. So they're going to remember it for forever and ever. But there's no question I could be, uh, I mean, I mean, I am subjective, but I could be objective. You certainly changed the lives of many, many young men who came and met you at Yeshiva University. But, you know, the when I think about one of the things that's going on today also, a new phenomenon, we're seeing Yeshiva graduates, Yeshiva kids trying to become like professional players. No one ever talked about it. I mean, you, you had one kid once who was drafted, you know, whatever, but he knew he wasn't going to make the team. But it was basically an idea, like, to get drafted to the NBA. But, you know, I think today with, with what happened with Ryan Terrell, how he was going to go to the NBA, maybe he will still, who knows. But, you know, talking about that and then watching someone get drafted by the Arizona Diamondbacks and another kid who was going to go play in college, we're beginning to see maybe young kids with an aspiration of maybe I could play professional. What's the upside and downside of that? Okay, so I I, I, <laughs> I, I know this is your first podcast. I want to make sure it's not your last one, but I have some very strong opinions about that, very, very strong feelings about it. The first yeshiva kid who, re- who actually really got drafted was David Kufeld. And he really, he got drafted. At the, it's not that he was going to get drafted, he did get. He was drafted by by the Portland Trailblazers, last round. In those days, he had thirteen rounds. He went to their rookie camp. He participated in the rookie camp, and he got cut. And I remember when he got when he got drafted. It was wow. And David's mother called me, and she said, "Johnny, she said, did you hear the news?" I said, "Yes, Mrs. Kufel, it's great. David got drafted." She says, "No, it's terrible." I said, "Why?" She says, "What is he going to do about Shabbos?" He now he may have to play on Shabbos. So I told her, I said, Mrs. Kufeld, I can't guarantee you many things, but I can guarantee you David will never have a conflict about playing on Shabbos. <laughs> but the reason I make that point is was Mrs. Kufeld's reaction was, oh, no, oh, my God, what's going to be the conflict with Shabbos? And it is a conflict. It can be a conflict. In good old days, lawyers got, you know, they were being hired by a firm. They got taken out for lunch. They had a real conflict. Are they going to eat with a yarmulke or not eat with a yarmulke? Are they going to a kosher restaurant or not a kosher restaurant? It's all of a sudden one of those life-changing decisions. You have to make choices. So now all of a sudden the world of sports, that has arisen. So I have a couple of feelings, a couple of points to make. Point number one, which after that there have been about, I think, five, four or five players who really stirred this pot. 
about going to the pros. Obviously, Gilad is going through it now. Tamir Goodman went through it about eight, ten years ago. There was another boy back then, also a young man named uh, uh, first last name was Lieberman. Uh, and there have been a few others, a few others, not with as much notoriety. And they were going to go to the pros. Number one, I don't think anybody understands the level of play at the professional basketball level. It, there is a, an enormous step between playing at a, at a di- big-time Division One program and the NBA. And that step is, so just imagine from Division Three, whether they have the talent or don't have the talent, there's so many other components that go into it. So it's, I think, highly unlikely that you're going to see a kid from uh, from Yeshiva who's practicing three, four times a week, by the way, starting in high school, making the NBA. It's just not, it's not realistic. Could it happen? Sure, it could happen. And if it does happen, then we come to the next point. That young man then has to decide what his priorities are. Not just the young man. The parents have to decide. Of course, at that point, the kid's old enough that he doesn't necessarily have to listen to his parents, but the parents are involved. And if you're a parent, let's say, who spent $200,000 on a yeshiva education, is, is that what you want for your kid? That when, when the moment comes, whether he's going to play at Shabbos or not play at Shabbos, he's going to choose to play at Shabbos? And I know if you have an Arab, it's uh, all of a sudden now the Arab. You know, it's also pretty interesting, Steve, considering you're the blame. <laughs> you are the blame, David, Steve, because now every time these kids play play uh, got to play on Shabbos, they say, "Oh, but there's an Arab." Well, but we know, I know, who started the Arab movement in the New York metropolitan area. You did. You and David Fould. I mean, I was in Kew Garden Hills. I mean, I you know, I watched from afar how you and David went. <laughs> so it's it's now a joke because an Arab now is so taken for granted, don't even bother checking anymore. But my point is that. Using the Arab as an excuse is is all it is. So the young man has to decide what he wants to do. You know, it has to make it has to make a decision. That's his personal decision. I understand the seduction of it, the money, the fame, the glory, as opposed to observing Shabbos. I, I hear you. I think it's a good I think it's a good thing. And I know that we've had conversations. I you mentioned Tamar Goodman, I Lishvach. Uh, you had, like you said, he he never played on Shabbos, and that was important. You know the title that he that he took as far as the the Michael Jordan. I don't understand that, but okay. What happens is you get caught up in the hoopla, not of your own making sometimes, but by your what I call the entourage, who who for some reason are living vicariously through you, and they want you to go play in the pros. I've had parents say, hey, look what's going on. He's going to play in the pros. And I say to the parent, I said, if that was your kid, what would you want? Is that what you want? And they pause. I said, what are you pausing about? You just spend $200,000 on your kid's Jewish education, and you're going to throw it all away so he can play in the pros, so he can shoot a ball. And you go, and don't tell you about Arab, please. I don't want to hear about Arab. Well, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, no, 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 no. There's no don't use any excuses. So that's one level of discussion. For me, the thing that really, and I'll tell you, really, really bothers me is that when you use your Jewishness for when it's to your advantage. So, for example, why is everybody writing about Terrell? Why did everyone write about Tamir Goodman? There are hundreds of kids like that. Why about the, the uh, you know, Steinmetz, the pitcher? There are hundreds of kids that sign contracts every year. No one writes stories about them. The story was that they were Orthodox Jews. And they presented themselves as Orthodox Jews. 
fine. They're, so now they have all this hoopla and they have all these stories and all the publicity. Why? Because they're Orthodox Jews who can shoot a basketball. There are hundreds of kids who can shoot a basketball, maybe better than them or as good as them. No one writes about them. So then they're Orthodox. They're Orthodox Jews. Present themselves as Orthodox Jews. Present themselves. You hear the words that what a kiddush Hashem. It's a kiddush Hashem. Look at him. He can play. He can score. He can study. He can learn. He's Orthodox. Okay. What you do in your your private life and your private decisions is your business. But once you take on that mantle that you're representative of the Orthodox world, you're an Orthodox player. So then don't, don't you dare, and I mean this sincerely, don't you dare go play ball at a tryout on a Friday night of the first Seder. Don't you dare sit on a bench on Shabbos for Northwestern University with your yarmulke on saying you're an Orthodox Jew on Shabbos. Don't you dare say, uh, I would rather uh, sit on the bench in an NCAA tournament game on Shabbos because it, that, that's more important to me than Shabbos. Th- that's your personal opinion? Do what you want. But don't you dare say you're an Orthodox Jew or don't re- represent the Orthodox community and don't have little kids running around, Orthodox kids coming to start asking you to sign their autograph and you become their hero. You're not their hero. You shouldn't be their hero. You can't stand on the on the victory stand with the trophy held high in the air and while simultaneously stamping, stomping on everything that's Jewish. Shabbos is uniquely Jewish, religious, orthodox concept. That we all know what those precepts are. So don't don't try to have it both ways. You can't have it both ways, and you should have it both ways. And it tell you the truth, it makes me crazy when they do it because it's not a kiddush Hashem. Okay, I hear what you're saying. It's it's a good point. It's as I say, it's something that we're beginning to deal with because it never happened before. But you know, once some people break the ice, then it becomes uh, something. And I think rabbis are going to have to talk about it. But anyway, you know, this has been a great a great session. But I like I want to end it uh, with something that I saw that uh, the great sports announcer Michael Kay. Uh, who does the Yankee games. He's, I think he's phenomenal. And he has this thing on his center stage where he has what he calls it the lightning rod, or he, I call it first thoughts. And it just it doesn't have to be you know, instantaneous, but it has to be kind of like your first thoughts. So I'm going to go through some questions. You don't have to jump into the answer, but you can think for a second or two. But okay, here we go. First, best player you ever coached? <laughs> Jeez. I, I look. I'm not trying to dodge the question, but I can think of t- instantaneously. I can think of ten players that pop into my head, and there's another three or four that I probably leave it out. So, I, and I, I hesitate to start running off names. Okay. So I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to do it. I've resisted that, but I just I just want to say one thing. I don't think that the, the, the goal should be the best. I think the goal should be just to be good. Your best today, right? And then tomorrow, someone's going to be so you have a regular thousand points. Tomorrow's going to have a thousand twenty-five. Judge has sixty-one home runs. I guarantee in five years, someone else will have sixty-seven. Okay, so let's let's go on to something else. I use the word best, but we could change it. But and I know you played, and I know you coached. So as a player, what was the best game you ever played? Queens College. Queens College. Triple overtime. We won. We beat Queens College triple over forty-eight points. And that game at the regulation, uh, we were down by, by two. I stole the ball about eight seconds ago, drove to the basket, made the basket, got fouled, missed the foul shot, so we didn't win the game. We went to the overtime. In the second overtime, down by two, three points, two points, 
I stole the ball, drove to the basket, tied the game, missed the foul shot. I remember coming back to the bench and Saracic screaming at me, you miserable, because <laughs> I didn't make the foul shot. But that's the best game. I think I scored 18 points. And what about coaching? What was the best game you ever coached? Oh, the best game I ever coached, when it comes to mind, is probably the Mount St. Vincent game when I needed that game uh, to go to the playoffs. We needed that. I, that game was for my 300th win. Uh, we were down by three, and I put Rafi, my son, into the game. And he made a three and tied the game, put us into overtime, and we won in overtime. Okay, now what about the – I kind of asked this in a way, but this I'm not saying necessarily a player – you coach, but you know the history of YU. If someone asked you, who do you think is the best player who ever played for YU? Uh, you have a sense of history. Who might it be? Okay, so if we go back uh, prior to, to me, Red Blue Iraq, Marvin Hershkowitz, and Irv Beta. Those, those three guys. Marvin was the early 50s. Uh, Blue Iraq was kind of like the mid 50s, and Beta was the last. Those, those are the three guys who I think are really the foundation of YU basketball is predicated on those three guys. And we should, you know, people should know that. Unfortunately, most people today do not know that. I hear you. I hear you. Now, I know, I know you. You know a lot of rabbis because you've been around. Uh, who's who's the best rabbi you ever met? Uh, rabbi Blau. Rabbi Blau. Well, the one from YU now. Yeah, Rabbi Blau was at YU. He's been at YU okay. for a number of years. Rabbi Blau was 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 what, what you know was great. Okay. Uh, Rabbi, I'm just giving you people who I really interacted with and really were very helpful to me. Rabbi Blau, Rabbi Weiss, uh, Avi Weiss. Those are the guys who jumped to my mind right away. Okay, okay. What about, and let's forget about basketball, but who was the most inspirational person that you ever met? Oh, oh, you know what? Aviva just whispered in my ear. She's right. Mickey Orleans. Oh, okay. Okay, I hear you. Right, okay. Mickey Orleans. A great person. Yep. A, gra- a great person. So what about the most inspirational person you ever met? Rabbi Krauss. I knew his name was going to be in there somehow. What about the smartest person you ever met? Aviva. Aviva, I think you're probably right. And like, he, he always asks a good question, Michael Case, is if you're in a foxhole, who would you want to be in a foxhole with? My kids. Okay. What about the uh, most interesting player that you ever coached? Oh, gee, interesting player. <laughs> oh, boy, oh, boy. Some of the most interesting players have been players who have given me the greatest trouble. <laughs> Let's pay. We can pass on that right now. What about when you look back and you say, like, sometimes there are players who are like, you know, they're not always the best, but they're like the smartest player. Who is the smartest player you ever coached? Uh, I'm, I'm going to give you two. One player, David Shalowitz, two, very smart player, very good player, uh, really, but under, under, understood the game. And um, Yehuda Halpert. You know, I hesitate to do that because... But Yehuda really, really understood the game. I hear you. What about the player that gave you the most nachas? Dovi Hoffman. Okay, why? Because Dovi Hoffman, when I almost didn't put him on the team, when they put him on the team, I said, Dovi, you're the 18th man on this team. And But if you want to play and you want to come to practice, it's okay. Uh, four years later, Dovi Hoffman was uh, all-conference. Really? Wow. Yeah. So uh, I, I always thought that uh, that was great satisfaction. Uh, I've, I've had other kids like that also. I know that, Baruch Hashem, you're doing great. You've, done a, you've accomplished a lot. If there, is, there, is there any place in the world that you haven't been to that you'd like to visit on your kind of like your list? And also one other thing, is there anything you'd like to do that you haven't done yet? In terms of visiting places, um, no, when you know when we have a chance to go, I think the greatest place to go is Israel. So uh, 
I'm not, you know, Paris and I think maybe Alaska. We talk about going to Alaska, but uh, no places. Uh, that's uh, as far as something that I feel I have to accomplish. I think <laughs> I'd like to win. A, I'd like to have won a championship. Okay. You know, I won one, you know, in 1970. That's a long time ago. Wow. Unbelievable. But, um, I, I, you know, like I said, Steve, I don't, you know, I think about it because it, you know, sometimes you're measured by that. But it's, that's, something, that's something I really I dwell on because, again, I look, just very just finish up. I've had great kids, players, great players, but better kids. Been very, very, very fortunate to have had going through so many kids. And also, I've been very fortunate that I had the opportunity to coach two of my kids. I had the opportunity to coach Yehuda and I had the opportunity to coach Rafi, which, which is challenging. I think it's more challenging for the kids because no matter what they, if, if they are the best players, and I'm not saying they were, if they're the best players, that people have a tendency to say, well, yeah, sure, the father's the coach. You know, and if they're not the best players, then why are they playing? So for the kid, it's uh, it, it, I, I think it's sometimes more of a challenge for the kids. But I was very lucky. Yehuda was, like I said before, a very smart player. Rafi was probably among the most unselfish players I had. Maybe as a function because his father was the coach. But you know, I Rafi co- Rafi coaches now. He coaches SAR, and it's I get great pleasure. And I've seen him do some of the, you know, a little of what I do, not a lot. <laughs> you know, he's his own man, but I get great pleasure out of watching him coach. He's he's, he's a terrific coach, understands the game, and very and very un, was a very very unselfish player. You know, he could have could have shot more, he could have done this more, but he didn't do that. He was all, I mean, you know. There was one game at the see the about a the game. There was one game that really also stood out. We played Maritime, a very tough team. We beat Maritime by two with about 13, 15 seconds to go. And the end was last possession. And they had one big kid, a six-five kid, who was their best player. And so I we played, I knew what we were gonna do to we play man-to-man, but I knew I had to stop the kid. That was the kid who was gonna score. And I put Rafi on Rafi guarded the six-five kid in the post and fought him with such determination. That they never could get him the ball, and we ended up winning the game by two points. So that, so I've been very lucky. I've had fabulous players. I've had, I've coached two of my kids, and I had a wife that was willing to attend. You know, a thousand basketball. No games question about it. And, well, listen, and, and sit in the bleachers. She did. I know that for a fact. Listen, thank you so much, John. It was a great pleasure having you on. And uh, you know, as I said, you know, I decided to do the podcast. I called it unrestricted because I really. When I have people on the program who just tell it as it is, you know, we're not looking to be politically incorrect. We're just trying to be a little bit honest about what we're trying to do. And someone like you who was in the limelight for so many years, I'm glad that people get a chance to see how you're doing. And thank God you're doing well. And uh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. You're being my guest on the, on the program. Well, have a great day. And thank you so much. Thank you, Steve, for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Unrestricted, hosted by Steve Savisky. The show was produced and edited by Gilad Brownstein and is a production of B'nai Zion.